Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! No. I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello and welcome to another Slate spoiler special. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic. Today we're going to be spoiling the new Jon Stewart movie, Irresistible. And I'm joined today to do that by Sam Adams, who's a Slate senior editor and the editor of our culture blog, Browbeat. Hey, Sam. Hello. And also by Tom Skoka, I think a first-time guest on this podcast, who is Slate's politics editor. Hey, Tom. Morning. And before we get started, just by way of an acoustics note, it seems like we have one of these ever since we all started recording podcasts from our homes. But Tom Skoka lives apparently two blocks away from a fire station and has nonstop alarms and sirens in his background. So if you hear any of that going on in the background, do not be alarmed at the alarms. So Irresistible, I guess we maybe need to give a little bit of background on on what Irresistible is. And because you're the person who wrote on it, reviewed it for Slate, Sam, do you want to tell us about Jon Stewart's second <laughs> venture into being a filmmaker and writer-director? Do I? Uh, yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, so this is the second movie that uh, Jon Stewart has directed, the first since uh, fully leaving The Daily Show in 2015, and so uh, can sort of fairly be construed as his response to the Trump era. Stars Steve Carell as a Democratic campaign consultant who, after getting his ass kicked in the 2016 election, he was trying to get his mojo back by managing a sort of small town mayoral candidate in uh, rural Wisconsin, played by Chris Cooper, who's a ex-Marine colonel who, as Steve Carell's character puts it, is a Democrat, even if he doesn't know it yet. And so this mayoral candidate in this kind of middle of nowhere town in Wisconsin becomes a proxy battle for not only the future of the Democratic Party, but American politics as a whole. Once Steve Carell's character is joined by his Republican counterpart, played by Rose Byrne. So it's a classic sort of, you know, fish out of water story, you know, big town comes to the little town, Washington political operatives out of their depth in quote unquote, real America, and a statement of sorts on all of these things. To get a sense of how the uh, the dialogue in this film sounds and um, sort of the type of characters that Steve Carell and Rose Byrne are playing, we'll listen to a little clip from the movie. I am telling you guys, Jack could be the real deal. This little campaign of ours has caught the attention of the National Republican Party. Why are you here? Because crushing the last piece of hope in your eyes really gets me off. It's good to see you. Yeah. You look fat. <laughs> All right. Well, one thing I like to do at the beginning of these spoiler specials, since these are not really about reviewing as much as, you know, just going through and analyzing bit by bit, talking about this movie in whatever way we want, essentially, let's get the evaluative part out of the way early and just go around the table and and ask, did you guys like this movie? Would you send a friend to it? Tom, I'll start with you since you haven't spoken yet. I disliked the movie. The movie has a twist uh, built into it. 
Um, and the twist is a revolting and disappointing twist. And it sort of um, <laughs> makes the whole movie even maybe a little bit less than what it was before. I completely agree about the twist. I'm also really disappointed in the movie that I tried to go into with a good spirit. We didn't talk much about Rosewater, John Stewart's first directorial effort, which was back in 2010 when he was still hosting The Daily Show. I mean, I don't think there's anybody out there who was, you know, a, a huge, rabid fan of Rosewater, but I think in general it was sort of received as, you know, this is a pretty good first debut movie for a guy who is from out completely outside the world of filmmaking. And to me, this feels like what I was afraid Rosewater would be, which is a very amateurish movie by someone who doesn't feel like they understand how people actually speak and is sort of incapable of, of writing dialogue that rings true. But Sam, what about you? I read your review, so I know, but just putting it out there. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, yeah, I, I disappointed was a word I used too. And then I kind of went from disappointed to angry, partly because of the twist. And just also, as it became clear that this, what little it had to say seemed not only uninteresting, but kind of disingenuous and wrongheaded and just kind of shockingly shallow for someone whose job for, you know, the better part of 15 years was, you know, watching American media and politics. And um, to think that kind of this movie is Jon Stewart's takeaway is anyway a little, a little bit shocking to me. I mean, I think his role as kind of America's, you know, foremost pop cultural intellectual or whatever he was supposed to be um, was always a little bit overblown. Uh, but it is genuinely surprising to me how far this movie falls short of even Jon Stewart at his best. Yeah. I mean, I think I went in thinking, well, how bad can this be, <laughs> right? Like, at the very least, it will have good jokes, clever dialogue. It's got Steve Carell. I thought that it would probably be a slickly enjoyable, if somewhat predictable, political satire. And I kind of agree that its grasp on not just this political moment, but even the political moment that Jon Stewart, I think, is still stuck in, which is one sort of the pre-Trump era, right? Right before his show ended. Even for that, it's toothless. Like, it would be toothless for an old Daily Show skit. Didn't you get that sensation throughout? Right. I mean, the premise of Irresistible is basically, as uh, Steve Carell's character Gary says to Chris Cooper's character, uh, retired Marine Colonel Jack Hastings, um, the reason that the Democrats are losing is because guys like me don't know how to talk to guys like you. So it completely buys into like the second week in November 2016 idea that, you know, Trump won the election and Republicans are in control or be because the Democratic Party is kind of abandoned, particularly the rural white working class. And then until they kind of learn to speak that language again, um, they're never going to gain power. And that's not to say that's not like a part of it, but I mean, there's, it was clear even then, it is so clear now. I mean, there's no mention of you know, like race baiting or voter suppression or gerrymandering or any of these other issues that are such a huge part of that. And it just seems like such a shallow and kind of equivocal misreading of what's going on that the movie ultimately comes down on the idea that like the system is broken and there's too much money in politics, which, you know, again, not untrue, but to act as if like that's the only problem is just kind of mind boggling to me. And, and for me, the really damning thing, um, the moment I kind of crossed over from being, you know, disappointed in the movie to getting mad at it is um, the reason that Steve Carell ends up in Deer Lock in Wisconsin in the first place is because of a viral YouTube clip. Uh, Chris Cooper's character 
storms into a town meeting where the mayor is preparing to pass this regulation that would basically bar local immigrants from taking advantage of, of town services. The military base that was kind of the lifeblood of the town has shut down. They have fallen on hard times. They're, everything is stretched thin. And their solution for this economically is apparently to, you know, basically cut off people who aren't white from town services. And Chris Cooper storms in and says, you know, this is America. We can't do stuff like this, yada, yada, yada. It goes viral, and Steve Carell sees this, you know, in the middle of his, you know, air-conditioned office in Washington, D.C., and decides he has to, this guy's the next Democratic star. He flies out and goes to get him. So the moment that I realized at the end of the movie and thinking back on it is that these immigrants that Chris Cooper is supposedly defending, and there's a reason for this maybe concerning the twist, which I guess we'll get to later, but these immigrants that he's supposedly defending never show up in the movie, never become characters, are really barely even seen. Um, there are almost no characters in the movie who aren't white, who aren't this kind of, you know, classic you know, version of kind of Hollywood version of rural white people. And the idea that Steve Carell has come out there because the party needs to connect with the rural whites and there's no mention of non-white people um, as far as a demographic that the Democratic Party needs to pay attention to and that they don't really have no presence in the movie whatsoever is actually like genuinely shocking for me, in part because it raises the issue in the first 10 minutes and then just completely forgets about it. Yeah. In fact, I thought that if, it, if there would be any twist, that would be the twist. I was thinking that at the end of the movie, it would turn out that I don't know, either that there was some immigrant underclass in the town that was going to turn the election by surprise or whatever surprise was sprung at the end of the movie, I thought would have something to do with the actual subject of that town hall that Chris Cooper storms into at the beginning, sort of rising up to make their own voice heard. And, you know, without spoiling the spoiler yet, that is not what happened at the end. Right. It's like the most appalling real life policy initiatives of the Trump administration are entirely a MacGuffin. Like, it's just the pretext for putting on the rest of the show. Right. So what is the problem that Stewart is diagnosing here? I mean, this is a very message-heavy movie. It almost even knows that about itself, right? I mean, it's not a movie that's trying to um, present, first of all, a character and stories, and secondly, the message, almost like an unfunny version of the show Veep, the TV show Veep. Instead, it is, you know, every character represents some sort of uh, malevolent political force. But in the diagnosis of this movie, this seems to be a critique of the money that flows through electoral politics more than it is uh, any sort of critique of what the GOP is actually doing to divide the electorate right now. Yeah, the thing about the, his campaign finance fixation in the movie is that it's definitely the case that campaign finance is a huge problem, as he's been telling everyone for a long time. But by now, the out-of-control campaign finance system has given birth to a political system on top of it. It's not just worrying about whether the money is being spent to buy too much influence. It's that we actually are living through what happens when a bunch of plutocrat cranks really get into the government and get to pursue their cranky agenda. Although campaign finance is a huge problem, we're now living in the world that out-of-control campaign finance is built, and there are many more visible political consequences. So it's sort of this, he's still focused on the background condition rather than on the new reality that has already come into being. Yeah, and that seems like that would have been such a, in addition to being more politically astute for our moment, it would have been a richer comic vein to go down, right? I mean, to look at the fact that all this is happening under the Trump administration, which instead he uses 
the election, Trump's election 2016, to to kick off the movie, to give the characters motivation to, you know, reinvent their lives by going to this small town and fighting this proxy battle in this mayoral race, but doesn't actually talk about what's going on in Washington at that same time, which, of course, if this were really happening, would have an enormous influence, right? I mean, the fact that Rose Byrne's character, for example, would have to defend the actions of the Trump administration, that could have made for a whole mine of political jokes that's never explored at all. Right. It's like if, I don't know if you had a movie about the Roosevelt administration and didn't mention either the Great Depression or or the war, depending on at what point in it, it was going on. It's just like a weird absence of history even as we're all drowning in history. I think he's trying to do something that is both kind of topical and, I mean, the word I'd use is generic. He'd probably say classic or something like that. I kept being reminded of the Ivan Reitman movie, Dave, and sort of threw that lineage all the way back to like, you know, Preston Sturge's movies about small town Americans, stuff like that. It just felt like a generic kind of central casting version of what white rural America is like. Um, it was actually shot in... Georgia. I mean, everything is now because of tax credits and whatnot. But it, given that the upshot of the movie at the end is that the best thing Washington could do for rural red state America is just go in and spend a ton of money. The fact that this movie didn't actually go and spend a ton of money in rural red state America is a little bit infuriating to me on top of everything else. But yeah, it feels just kind of, you know, generic and bland and the jokes about what people are in small towns are like and what, you know, big city political consultants are like are all so kind of tired and old hat. You can sort of make a case once you get to the twist that that's the point, you know, that this is all kind of a big put on. And so the reason it feels inauthentic is because it is, but you can't really kind of retcon, you know, the first 90 minutes of the movie and say, oh, it was bad on purpose. Wink, wink, because it's not actually supposed to be real. It's like, well, then what did I just sit through that whole time? Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, well, this is sort of jumping ahead, but I feel like we need to spoil the twist in order to talk about this movie in, in any depth. Because as you say, Sam, it, it does force you to completely retcon everything you've just seen and suspends the movie into an even stranger world of non-resemblance to our political reality than it already occupied. So, Tom, I'm going to throw it to you because I think you probably feel more spite toward this movie than any of the three of us. Uh, so go ahead and tell us what happens in the last 15 minutes. And to do that, I think we probably need to set up the character of, of Chris Cooper's daughter, played by Mackenzie Davis. So Chris Cooper's daughter has been sort of saintly and patient and has challenged the cynical big city assumptions of the consultant at every turn. She's the voice and face of small town honesty and rectitude. And then all of a sudden, as they're preparing to do a savage oppo dump on, on the incumbent mayor, something involving his opioid addicted brother, I believe, she shows up at the incumbent mayor's house late at night and suddenly it becomes clear that they're in cahoots on something. What it turns out that they're in cahoots on is that the whole election is fake. 
It's all put on. It's a work. The video was fake. It was staged to lure the big city political consultants out to turn this small town into a national political battleground so that they could milk all the money from them and get all the PACs, which are corrupting America, to pour their money into their town so that they could make up for the loss of the military base and restore their economy. And the election itself is a sham. Nobody bothers to vote except the two candidates. It comes out a tie. I guess they're going to work together to spend all the money that they've taken from the big city suckers. And that's your movie, right? It's, it turns right. out that the reason that the small town people are so unfailingly kind and warm and simple seeming around these extremely half dimensional, rotten political consultant figures is that it's the Truman Show, that they're just pretending to have an election and pretending to be nice to them because they're manipulating them. Right. But in spite of that manipulation and what would appear to be cynicism, the end does also seem to revert to this rosy view of small town rural life, right? Because what does the city do with all this super PAC money that they've raised, but funnel it into all these utopian projects? And the last time you see Chris Cooper and his daughter, they're you know, consulting on how to build a senior home and they're going to have all sorts of social services paid for with the super PAC. So the movie has this strange oscillation between, you know, a kind of rosy utopian idealism about small towns and this really thoroughgoing cynicism that everybody has an angle and a game, including, you know, those who seem to be speaking up for the heartland. Part of what's so irritating about the movie, though, is that it doesn't even view that as cynical. It's like they're being manipulative because they're too good for politics. Yeah. Is that what you mean, Sam, when you say in your review, this is a sentence I wanted to ask you about. You say at, at one point, but Stewart isn't that much of a cynic or even enough of one. And I know a lot of, almost every critic has disliked this movie, which makes me feel a bit sad for John Stewart. But, you know, he, he made it. He asked for it. Um, but most of them regard the movie as too cynical. This uh, idea of yours that he isn't quite cynical enough was, uh, was interesting to me. Can you elaborate on that? Right. I mean, I, th- I do think it goes in both directions. Yeah. I mean, there is the idea that, uh, you know, well, these small town people are still just kind of, you know, noble and good and taking advantage of the, you know, big bad Washington people in order to just bring some money to their town, which needs it. This is also a system he's positing, as, as Tom was saying, in which really the only option is to exploit its corruption to your own advantage. There's no way to reform the system. You can only exploit it to your own benefit. All you can do is kind of fuck people over in a way that benefits yourself and maybe doesn't harm other people all that much, or at least only harms, you know, the right people who kind of deserve it. There's no improvement here. And there's certainly no dealing with so many of the root issues at the rise of this political culture that it's documenting, which, you know, is about money, but is also about a lot of other things that the movie doesn't deal with. And I find that kind of, you know, depressing and like draining in a way, really. Yeah, this movie does a thing which comedy should never do, which is leave you with less energy than you went in. There's something about the place that it leaves you. I mean, in regard to the characters in the story, and also just to its larger comment on politics, that's this just sort of like, is that all there is, you know? It's deflating just in terms of the movie itself, right? Because of all the action has been a put on that you've been sitting through, then like, who even cares? It seems just totally deflating in every way. I'm not a person who feels like, you know, satire or, you know, political art or whatever you want to 
call this a very kind of feeble and denatured example of. I don't necessarily feel like it needs to like, you know, leave you on an up note or provide a solution or or anything like that. I mean, I think you can just do really sort of, you know, caustic, cynical across the board. Everything is screwed and we're all going to die art, partly just as a personal expression, but also as a sort of there's an urgency to that. If you do it right, this is how things are going to be if we don't change things. But there's something about this movie where it's also cynical and also very flatly accepting. You know, things are bad and messed up, but it's also kind of like this, you know, light, genial, small town comedy. And and if things are actually as bad as this movie says they are, that's not kind of like a ha-ha, wow, things are terrible kind of way. That's like, that should be the John Stewart that we remember where he's like yelling into camera three because they're not, you know, funding medical relief bills for 9-11 first responders or something like that. That's, you know, those are the moments that often made The Daily Show so galvanizing when John Stewart just got mad in a really impassioned way. And that fire just like isn't in this movie anywhere. And I really miss it. Yeah, I think that's what I mean about the draining. I mean, of course, it isn't that every comedy, especially political satire, should end on an up note. Not at all. And as you say, Preston Sturges and I think also Frank Capra are somewhere in the DNA of this movie. Those films, Preston Sturges could go really dark and Armando Iannucci now can go really dark. But his movies can still leave you, as you say, feeling in some way galvanized or at least sort of passionate in your your anger and disgust. And uh, and this movie does kind of limp to so much more of a wan conclusion. The movie that this left me thinking about, but it's a movie that I loved when it came out nearly 25 years ago, which is Reginald Hudlin's The Great White Hype, my favorite boxing movie of all time. I don't know if you remember the movie at all. I haven't seen it. Have you, Sam? I have not. I, I remember it existing. But yeah. It. The, the premise is Samuel L. Jackson is basically Don King. There's a heavyweight champion who is easily winning all his fights, who's avoiding the consequential fight with the real challenger, but the ratings are dropping. None of his fights are interesting. So they go and find a white guy who beat him in Golden Gloves once and is now like a vegetarian pacifist punk band frontman and turn him into a boxer again so that they can have a race war heavyweight match. Jeff Goldblum starts out as a crusading reporter exposing the corruption of the boxing game and then he's himself drawn into it to the extent that he tries to become the manager of the white guy. You know, and he has a whole scheme where when the white guy wins, he's going to manage him and take over. But of course, unlike in this movie, there's no twist. The twist is that after all the buildup, he gets his ass beat swiftly. The twist is that everything is how it looks like it's going to be. And that allows it to be a much more biting commentary on the world that it explores than, than this movie. The thing about the movie is that it just goes from A to A. That's part of the nature of having this hidden twist, right? Nobody learns anything. Nobody's corrupted by anything. Colonel Jack isn't at all affected by becoming a national TV celebrity in the course of his campaign. The big money doesn't make anyone do anything they wouldn't do. Even before the twist, he's getting all the pack money, the, the righteous Colonel Jack, by just you know going and telling the people how much he despises their money. It's a tale of money in politics that somehow doesn't incorporate any corruption i don't know it's just you're telling the story without anyone being a moral agent in an interesting kind of way right 
Well, and there I think you get to something beyond I mean, we've talked about this because this movie presents itself so much as a political allegory and wants you to talk a bit on that level. We've really approached it that way. But where it really falls short is in telling a story, right? And writing dialogue and having good characterizations. And that's the place where, for example, the Chris Cooper character, I mean, Chris Cooper stipulated Chris Cooper is perfect for this role, right? It's a great idea to cast him as something like this because he has both that sort of, um, you know, rural middle America appeal, but also also a sense that he's always that he's hiding something or that he, you know, that he is a clever strategist behind the scenes. He's got that kind of uh, canniness behind his eyes. It's beautiful casting. And if that character had been better written, then yes, as you say, Tom, what you would see would be how does it affect this, you know, small town truth teller to be swept up into this meet John Doe style narrative, right? I mean, that's the story that this reminded me of is the uh, the Frank Capra movie where Gary Cooper kind of becomes a similar symbol from the heartland who gets manipulated in all kinds of ways by the media, but also stipulated meet John Doe is an infinitely better and smarter movie than this. And part of the reason why is because it's telling the story of, you know, perhaps a fanciful tale that could never really happen in political reality, but of real characters that are real people that are affected by the world around them. And maybe that goes to what I was saying about this taking place during the Trump administration and yet not seeming to be affected, right? I mean, every single household in America has been affected by the things going on in D.C., but this movie takes place in a bubble that seems to be completely removed from that reality. Right. I mean, while we're using John Stewart's movie as an opportunity to recommend much better movies, one that this reminded me of in a way is a 2005 documentary by Rachel Boynton called Our Brand is Crisis, um, which is about the presidential uh, election in Bolivia, the one that Evo Morales ended up losing, where the, the winning candidate hires James Carville's firm to come down and consult on his election. And that's a, that's a story about a democratic political operative coming into a sort of fragile democracy environing it and just ruining it with American techniques, completely subverting the will of the people, running this total bullshit campaign, you know, allegedly in the version of some sort of neoliberal capitalist democracy or whatever, but just like fucking up the whole country with these like horrible Washington techniques and reflecting back on how much those techniques have done damage to the US as well. Irresistible is probably never going to go there, but it would, you know, similarly sort of alien environment. I think this movie sort of treats rural Wisconsin as if it's as foreign a place as Bolivia um, and seems to know as much about it as, as James Carville does about South America as well. Right. Even though that is one of the structuring jokes of the movie is that the political operatives, you know, carpet bagging their way into the town don't really understand the town and are constantly condescending to everyone, right? But the movie doesn't seem to be aware that it too is falling into the same trap. But again, <laughs> this movie is trapping us too. We keep on talking about it as this heavy, awkward political allegory that it is, but it is also a comedy. And I'm just curious, was there anything in this movie that made you laugh? Was there any thread that you thought had it been developed would have made you laugh? Where did you find or recognize any of... John Stewart's actual ability to make people laugh, which at least for me, back when The Daily Show was on, you know, he really could. And I, he was one of the things that got me through the Bush administration. I watched that show every night. I was really sad when he went off the air on it. And I can point to a couple things in this movie that had they been developed more, had they been roads that had gone down, would have made me laugh. But I want to hear what yours are. Part of what goes on with evaluating John Stewart as filmmakers is he really doesn't settle into a tone very well. Partly, it's I think that he's trying to square the whole Truman Show problem of how this, what you see isn't what's really happening. 
he tends not to to stay in one register very well. And so there are occasional moments when he strays into a different register that's a better register. There's this really sort of horrifying scene where a billionaire mega donor shows up. He's like some, I think they call him the rocket guy or something. He's obviously got tech money and he's comatose and strapped into a, a robotic exoskeleton that's like lumbering into the cafe. And then he like lurches awake to babble out something and then passes out again. And the whole idea is that he's coming to make sure that Colonel Jack is a staunch enough supporter of Israel. Right. And that, which, you know, brings up the, the stories that I've read of like people walking through the like dog crapped covered carpets in Sheldon Adelson's hideaway to get him to give them money. Right. This vision of like the plutocracy as genuinely deranged and forcing people into this medieval kind of servitude toward the noble class that actually rules us. You know, that's so that was a vision of some really horrible dystopian reality uh, that's much more compelling than all this goofball small town stuff. So that, you know, there was that there was the moment when CNN breaks out the dodeca box, a grid of 12 pundits who are like half of whom are encouraged to be talking over each other at once. That was going to be mine. That scene made me laugh. And that it had struck a little bit the tone of the of the Daily Show. Just the idea that what talk TV consists of is, you know, sicking entire groups of people and other groups to, to all talk at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it just it produced white noise. It was that was kind of glorious. If you made a whole movie that was that was like that, I wouldn't be complaining about whether the characterization was realistic enough. What are the things that jumped out for me? This is really just a moment of pure comedy that kind of has nothing to do with with political commentary and is maybe why it works. As I mentioned before, Rose Byrne plays Steve Carell's kind of Republican operative. She's this, you know, sort of rail thin, elaborately, you know, quaffed and made up, you know, power bitch uh, consultant, um, who is, of course, the two of them are also like kind of secretly hot for each other in a certain way. So she shows up in town, kind of airdrops into there and just immediately tells, starts telling Steve Carell all the various ways that he's going to get his ass completely handed to him. And she's having this initial conversation with him. He's sitting in this small town coffee shop that he's grown very fond of. And she's kind of, you know, whispering in his ear on the way out. And then she goes in for what looks like she's going to give him a peck on the cheek and then just licks his face, totally deadpan, and then walks out. And that's that's not really like a sensible moment in the context of the movie, but it's also like, I mean, I'm such a huge Rose Byrne fan of almost everything she does. And that's one of the few moments this movie uses her so badly, gives her almost nothing to do. And that's one of the few moments where you feel like Jon Stewart was just like, okay, Rose, like just do something funny here. Or she was like, hey, can I just try something and came up with this brilliant, weird thing that, I mean, doesn't even really fit in the rest of the movie. There are a couple moments like that. There's one part where Steve Carell, I can't even remember the context, but he's in a sort of Chris Cooper's campaign headquarters, which is just like somebody's kitchen table. And he throws a fit. And then he just kind of is going around the room, riffing on stuff. There's all these like jump cuts in there. At one point he's talking about like the collection of decorative spoons that's hung on the wall. And it just is completely out of tone, out of kilter with the rest of the movie. And it's very clearly like, we're kind of dead here. Like Steve, just do some funny stuff. I'll figure out what to do it later. But it is also just like, okay, like, Thankfully, there's some comedy in here. At least a lot of it doesn't doesn't fit the movie. But since I don't like what the movie is for the most part, uh, that that doesn't bother me as much. Yeah, that scene that scene where he starts riffing about things, including the spoons on the wall. Steve Carell himself is funny in it, but that was the first moment that I thought 
is pretty early in the movie. And I thought directorially, this movie does not know what it's doing because the way that that was cut together as essentially a bunch of jump cuts, right, that made it really clear that that it was improvisation just seemed very artless. And it was a moment that I was I was very aware that there was an extremely skilled comedian, you know, one who obviously has worked with Jon Stewart a lot in the past, and they get each other's senses of humor, who was riffing on set in a way that was funny, and that the director didn't know how to harness that energy into, you know, incorporating it into the story. Instead, that felt like a bunch of bloopers, you know, outtakes that might go at the end of a of a sitcom in the in the credits or something. Um, So it was a combination of yes, there's some actual humor happening somewhere on set. And oh boy, you know, this is really not going anywhere good. I completely agree that both Bill Irwin, which is the name of the actor, a great clown, great sort of theatrical clown who plays that billionaire in the exoskeleton, and the moment of Rose Byrne licking Steve Carell's face stood out because they didn't seem to belong in a good way. I mean, those were moments of actual imagination, right? They were actual kind of um, grotesque inventions that either occurred on set that Rose Byrne improvised the licking, or, you know, it was just a crazy moment that occurred to Jon Stewart. It's almost Elon Musk-like, right? Like, what if a billionaire would be some sort of half-robotic, you know, cyber being that just um, was, was controlled by remote control? And those things didn't belong in a good way. Way, right, they couldn't they couldn't be incorporated into this really schematic, formulaic narrative about campaign finance reform, and that was what made them good. But it also just made them lonely outliers in the rest of the movie. Right, as you say, I mean, it just gives you the sense that this movie is is not only doesn't know what it's doing, but is really desperate. Like especially the way that Steve Carell scene is cut together is just so from hunger, and you can see. Um, either John Stewart or his editor just sitting in the room and being like, "Man, this thing is dead. Like we got to goose it." Just you know, is there anything we can use? Yeah. Right. And a lot of good performers also standing around not getting enough to do, right? I mean, in the opening credits, I was still excited for the movie. There's that Bob Seger song under the credits with the black and white montage of old uh, campaign snapshots. And I was sort of keeping my hopes high still. And then you see in the credits, oh, Natasha Leone is going to be in this. And Bill Irwin, who plays that billionaire. Topher Grace is in it as this pollster, this guy who, um, you know, who, who was brought in for data analysis. And all of those people are really gifted and could have had actual characters and actual scenes, and especially Natasha Leone, right? I mean, just somebody who I'm sure could be let loose on set and come up with a million great ideas. But they all, to me, could have been played by just any generic headshot that had been sent in. I'd forgotten that they were even in there until you reminded me of them. Because they're, they're, the characters that they're playing don't really even do much. The purpose of Natasha Leone's character is to like set up one incredibly wheezy thing where she targets a group of single women for abortion rights messaging. And then it turns out that the group of single women she's targeting are nuns. Like, haha. <laughs> right. They're just jokes about how he's the pollster. She's like the the data analysis analytics person. And the idea is that they're working in a community where when they're doing polls and they're saying the margin of error, the margin of error is like literally eight people that they can identify by name. Um, you know, it's like, oh, oh, oh we think Justine is trending <laughs> you know, Republican. And that their sort of big city techniques are so out of kilter with what should be just this grassroots politics of just, you know, going door to door, going to, you know, fish fries and clam bakes and talking to people one on one. But they're so, you know, caught up in their high flung computers. Oh, man, um, that they can't grasp what the reality on the ground is. But it's just it's going a long way around the block for a very toothless and like 20 years old joke. 
Yeah, they're there to stand for ideas rather than to, to be characters or even make jokes, really, of, of any kind. So we keep on talking about how this movie is all ideas and and no sort of um, emotion and or character interest. That becomes really explicit at the end when for the first time we not see but hear John Stewart himself, his familiar voice, uh, doing an interview in the final credits, basically in the middle of the song rolling, same Bob Seger song as from the beginning, he suddenly appears and starts interviewing a former chairman of the Federal Election Commission, I believe. And Tom, I think you had something to say about that moment. I mean, that's just where, no matter how disappointed you may already be, the movie just sacrifices any claim it could possibly have on your goodwill. He turns it into a lecture. You're sitting at the point where a more enthusiastic comic filmmaker might be showing you the best uh, outtakes, you know, or like had tacking on a little hilarious coda or something. And it's just him having somebody who isn't even an active player in the system anymore telling you about once again this background fact that there sure is too much money in politics there really really is too much money there's money in politics the people who spend the money are not accountable to you and that money in politics deforms our system and this is a real problem and john stewart is going to interview this guy about it to tell you that there's too much money in politics at the end of a movie that was supposed to be about how bad money in politics is already it's just it's the opposite of a joke it's just hammering joylessly away at the thing that the movie ought to have already sold you on the idea that at that point in the movie it's possible for you not to know what it's about when there are like big speeches about like money in politics and how it needs to go to you know people in small towns and we trick you fancy washington people and whatever and the idea that, I mean, that like John Stewart's word, you might not have gotten the message at that point is probably more hilarious than anything that's actually in the movie. Yeah, it's almost like, why didn't his loved ones take him aside and tell him, <laughs> you know? I mean, there is nothing that will kill the message of your message movie faster than having it just essentially nailed to the door, like Martin Luther's 95 Theses during the closing credit sequence. Just call Western Union. Yeah, if not his loved ones, it's like, it's a window into whatever process he managed to create for making this movie. Like clearly somebody should have been like, man, it's not working. It's just bringing the whole thing down. And the movie from end to end clearly did not have somebody being in a position to tell him what wasn't working. All right. Rarely have I hosted a slate spoiler special where everyone agreed so completely and joylessly about the movie. And uh, so that may be drained energy from our conversation as well. I blame the movie for that fact. Well, you know, Jon Stewart long ago famously indicted the whole crossfire theory of needing to have people angry at each other to produce compelling television, making people argue just for the sake of argument. That was poisoning our politics and dragging it down. So... He forced Crossfire off the air. And, uh, <laughs> so he should be very should be happy glad with that this we all podcast. Agreed. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and we don't have any three people to talk at once, you know, defending the movie <laughs> on the other side. One thing I will say is that I don't know what Jon Stewart is going to do next, but I, I hope that he does not go down the road of becoming a filmmaker. And I wouldn't have said that after Rosewater. I think although it felt, you know, in some ways like a first film, it was at least unexpected. You would not have necessarily expected him to make a movie about an Iranian hostage situation. And it had a nice performance by Gael Garcia Bernal. It had some moments of directorial 
uh, if not elegance, at least sort of taste. Um, so the fact that he's gone downhill, pretty far downhill with his second attempt kind of makes me hope that while I'd like to see him in the public eye, I would like to see him doing something in entertainment. I really hope that it is not filmmaking. Would the two of you agree? I might take the opposite lesson. What it showed is that he's been out of the political commentary game too long. And maybe he should just make movies and stop trying to do the thing that he used to do every night and is now doing in slow motion. Right. So he should stick with the filmmaking part, but not with a with any political content. Yeah, maybe he needs to actually stay on top of the news to do political commentary. Maybe it's uh, better suited for the medium of television. I mean, I would sort of go in, in the opposite direction and say, you know, The Daily Show was in so many ways kind of such an extraordinary factory or like, you know, talent scouting thing. I mean, there's so many people who kind of, you know, came out of that environment. I mean, Carell himself, Colbert, Samantha Bee. John Oliver. You know, Sam Minaj, Larry Wilmore, all these incredible people. And, you know, John Stewart has, you know, with when he was at Comedy Central, he putting people on the show, helping other pe- people get at their shows. He really, you know, did a lot of good things because as a, as a producer, as an enabler, and I think maybe that's where he should be focusing his energies now, or at least be, you know, putting as much effort into that as he is into making these pretty sort of innocuous and, and not especially noteworthy movies. I mean, if he could do, you know, a tenth of what Brad Pitt has done with his, you know, Plan B production company, I think that might be John Stewart's best chance to put, you know, more good stuff into the world. And if there's a, you know, comic equivalent of you know, Steve McQueen or Barry Jenkins, whose next movie John Stewart can help get made. I would really love it if he would do that. A comic equivalent of Steve McQueen. That's I'm just pondering that concept. <laughs> Possibly the least yeah. humorous filmmaker out there. That was not a, not a scripted line, I guess you can tell, but you, you get the point. <laughs> All right. Well, in spite of the fact that none of us laughed at this movie, except for maybe two scenes, I hope that both of you will come back and spoil another movie with me sometime because it was, it was fun talking to you about it. Thank you, Dana. Yeah, thanks. Well, that's it for this Slate Spoiler Special. We hope you will subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like this show, please rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. That really helps people find us and helps to support the show. If you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows you would like us to spoil or other feedback to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer today was Rosemary Belson. For Sam Adams and Tom Skoka, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.